My name is Jordan. For those of you that don't know me, please come up to me after the service and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. And next week, I will try to remember your name, <laughs> probably with about 30% success. For those of you who are new or have just forgotten, we're about halfway through a sermon series entitled Encounters with Jesus. We're looking at little vignettes from the Gospel of John, these personal encounters between Jesus and the diversity of people. And this morning, we're reflecting upon Jesus' encounter with a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, before we go there, which we're going to spend most of our time on, I just want to digress for two seconds and say a little word about textual criticism, because every good sermon begins with a word about textual criticism. <laughs> now, most English translations, we don't have it printed in our bulletins, but if you look in your kind of English translation Bibles, you'll see the passage that we're talking about kind of in double brackets. And anytime there's double brackets, you go, what's going on? And all that is to say is that um, the, the kind of ancient Greek manuscripts that our English translations are actually translations of, in the earliest kind of series of Greek manuscripts, this story actually didn't show up here in the Gospel of John. And if you kind of read the Gospel of John, chapter 7, all the way to verse 52, and then you skip this passage and you go to chapter 8, verse 12, you actually realize that it's quite seamless and smooth. Um, it's like the narrative was originally written that way. Now, this raises a whole host of questions, right? Like, why are we preaching on this passage and these sorts of things, you know? Um, this, this story, though, a lot of people believe was actually something that was kind of handed on in the church's tradition, kind of as an oral story that was told. And then at some point, pretty early on, but not in its earliest manuscripts, it was actually added to our Gospels. Now, we have it here in the Gospel of John, but there are all these manuscripts that show it in other places as well. Like, Maybe it was at the end of John sometimes. Sometimes it was in the middle of Luke. And people were a bit unsure where to put it. But one thing was pretty consistent, is that everybody believed that this was actually an authentic kind of historical event, an account of Jesus' interaction with somebody. And the church felt like they were discerning in this event the truth and the voice and the grace of Jesus Christ speaking to us. And so they continued to place it, however awkward it was, to place it in the biblical canon. And so I approach this passage, I preach on this passage this morning, as it may be awkwardly placed, but it is an authentic witness to who Jesus is. And he wants to continue to speak to us through it today. So that's how I approach the passage. Now, why did I decide to preach on this passage, given the textual critical stuff? And it's because I think there's a message that is really important for us today for our church, and for our culture. And it's quite simply this, that Jesus is full of grace and truth, always together, never apart. Grace and truth, always together, never apart. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father. And what does it say? Full of grace and truth. That's the nature of Jesus' glory. See, Jesus holds together what are, in his life, what our lives so often split apart. Uh, Jesus' ministry holds together what the church's ministry so often splits apart. Jesus' politics hold together what our cultural politics and national politics so often split apart. Grace and truth. I think we're kind of schooled by cultural and spiritual convention to think that grace and truth are binary terms. We think of grace without truth, or we think of truth without grace. 
And grace without truth eventually leads us down this road of kind of libertarianism, which is dead, end, dead ends and self-indulgent kind of pluralism. And truth without grace leads us down a road of legalism, which dead ends in self-righteous moralism. And depending on your personality and disposition, you may lean one way or the other a bit more, right? Think about the Myers-Briggs test. We all love the Myers-Briggs test. It uh, pigeonholes us right where we want to be nailed down. But think about it. Are you a T? Are you a thinker? Or are you an F, a feeler? Are you a J, a judger? Or are you P, a perceiver? See, we will lean one way or another depending on our personality. But then there's the complicating factor of sin that enters into our personality, right? The presence of sin gets in there and kind of mucks up our natural dispositions, not by changing our dispositions wholeheartedly, but by taking our natural proclivities and distorting them into unhealthy extremes. Taking our natural proclivities and distorting them into unhealthy extremes. And so, for example, God brings us to a knowledge of the truth. He makes us passionate about the truth. And then sin gets in there and distorts that knowledge and that passion so that we proclaim the truth ungraciously, uncharitably, lording it over others. Or another example, God draws us into a transforming experience of his grace. He sets us free from some sort of sin. And then we use that experience and that freedom Sin gets in there and distorts that freedom and that experience, and we accept it as like a license to ignore the truth or to get fuzzy about the nature of sin. Now, grace and truth are not just some abstract binary realities. <laughs> this informs the very texture of our daily lives. A wonderful example of this uh, can be the dynamics of the parent-child relationship, for example. Uh, Susie went to a seminar a couple weeks ago on parenting and spiritual formation. Now, there's a great seminar for you. <laughs> and they mapped out this chart that I thought was actually really helpful. They kind of did the X and Y axis sort of thing and made four quadrants. Let's see how long I can talk like this. Um, so I'm Italian, so I have this tendency to use my hands but too much. Um, but So you got the y-axis of grace, and you have the x-axis of truth. And if you are high grace, or let me think about this, yeah, high grace and low truth, then the parent-child relationship will tend to be one of just hanging out. High grace, low truth. So you have some sort of issue in the middle, and you're on either side of it, and you're kind of circling around the issue, avoiding it, and you're kind of just becoming best friends or hanging out. You're high grace, low truth. Now, if you are low grace, low truth, then you will check out. Instead of hanging out, you will check out. So you'll have this issue in the middle of you, and then you start avoiding it, right? Because there's not a context of grace, nor is there a context of truth. So you just kind of, it distances you, and you start checking out. Now, if you are low grace, and you are high truth, then you will be calling it out. <laughs> so this is me and my daughter. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, low grace, high truth. And there's some issue, and you're butting heads, and you're conflicting, and you keep calling it out, but there's not a context of grace for it. If you're high grace and high truth, then you are standing next to each other, and you are calling each other into the kingdom. You're looking at this thing side by side in grace, and speaking the truth, and saying, what is God doing? How do we enter into the kingdom together? 
You see, and I feel like these dynamics could easily be traced in the church's response to questions about, say, gender and sexuality as well. High truth, low grace, and we hear countless stories of pain and hurt that that causes. High grace, low truth, and we know the confusion that causes. We could trace similar dynamics in our cultural, political discussions as well. And whatever the example, the message, I think, of our passage, John chapter 8, which we are getting there, is the same. Jesus cuts across the polarized, our polarized ways of living and relating. He holds together and invites us to hold together what we so often rend asunder, grace and truth. Because the word became flesh, he dwelt among us. We have seen his glory and we continue to see it. And it's full of grace and truth. Now, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus to test his commitment to the truth. Verses 3 to 6 in our passage. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They placed her in the midst of the crowd, in the midst of the temple. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger in the ground. It's an interesting response, first of all. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a moment. But I've often wondered, what was Jesus thinking and feeling as he bent down to write on the ground? That's the question I kept coming back to this week. I just couldn't get away from it. What was Jesus thinking and feeling when he was there? And we don't know for sure, but I suspect he may have been pondering at least two things. The first thing being the inequality of the situation. Their cry for justice was riddled with injustice. The scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who is caught in adultery, but where is the man? The Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22, if you want some good bedtime reading, read that tonight. specifically stipulates that there should be an equal penalty for both the man and the woman. But only the woman bears the accusation here, with the full force of public shame and humiliation. And we could go on about this, but unfortunately, this sort of inequality still persists all over the place in our culture. And no doubt Jesus feels compassion for this woman. She stands alone. She bears the shame alone. She faces death alone, and the man is nowhere to be seen. And yet, Jesus knows that the law of Moses is clear. The penalty is stoning. I think Jesus feels the inequality of the situation as he draws on the ground. And the other thing is, I think he's considering the motivation behind the question of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus knows the motivations behind their hearts. He's always asking, what's the question underneath the question? And for them, it was, is Jesus a man of truth and justice? Or is Jesus a man of grace and compassion? Is Jesus for Moses? Or is he against Moses? Is he a Bible believer or is he not? You see, their question is a calculated plot designed to force Jesus into a lose-lose situation, a lose-lose decision. They want to discredit him. He He can obey the law of Moses and kill the woman, Or he can let the woman go free and discredit the law of Moses. Neither is great. 
Jesus discerns the hidden motivations of their heart, though. And think, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus kneels down, and he pauses to ponder. <laughs> I mean, in our cultural, our current cultural discourse, I wonder if we need to wean ourselves from the instinctive reactiveness of the human heart. I'm just, think about the political climate. It's like somebody throws something out, and it's before we can even think about it, we're just up in the ante and throwing something more intense out. You can follow people's tweets and Twitters and whatever accounts, and it's just constantly escalating. But Jesus pauses to ponder. I wonder if we need to train ourselves to pause and consider. What is the question underneath the question? Is this really a matter of truth and justice? Or are we just pulling party lines here? See, Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground, in part to consider the dynamics of the situation. How do I respond in the face of such inequality? How do I address the motivation behind the question? Verse 7, Jesus stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground again. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Notice what Jesus did not do. He did not relax the law of Moses. In fact, he upholds it. Remember what Jesus said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And then just a few verses later, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, what we find Jesus doing throughout the Gospels is he doesn't require less than what the law requires. Sometimes he actually ups the ante and he requires more. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. You see, Jesus acknowledges the law of Moses. He says, yes, stoning is the penalty for this woman. But he ups the ante and he says, but which of you accusers is blameless? Jesus' words reveal the truth about the woman, but they also reveal the truth about her accusers. She is guilty, and so are they. And one by one, the accusers drop their stones and they start to walk away. And it says the older ones first. Isn't that an interesting detail? We could spend some time here. But I think it's worth just asking, as we grow older, we will go in one of two trajectories. And which one are we on? We can be mo become more set in our ways and cynical. Or we can become softer and more sensitive. We can become more self-righteous and judgmental. Or we can become more humble and gracious. One of the churches that I grew up in, in Northern California, had a head pastor who had been there for a number of years, and it came out tragically that he had been having an affair for three years. And the affair was with the daughter of the chair of the elder board. It was devastating. They both had three or four kids. <laughs> I mean, this church of 2,000 people just didn't know what to do with it. And it was astonishing to see the different reactions between the pastor and this woman. The pastor fled, and he never showed his face again in church. 
the woman got up the next Sunday and she stood before the congregation and she publicly confessed her sin before the people of God. And she begged for their forgiveness. And then she asked for their prayer because she said, goodness me, me and my family are going to need it. And so there was a time of praying for her. And there was this wonderful moment where this little old lady who was a matriarch in the congregation, we all know him, <laughs> there's a lot of them in this congregation, who if anybody was to judge, would be the first who had the right to. And she worked her way through the crowd of people. And she walked up to this woman and she handed her a stone. Who knows where she got it? <laughs> <laughs> Did she go to the parking lot or something? Who knows? <laughs> Looked her in the eyes. Said, I will not be the first to throw a stone. It was the beginning of a healing journey. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at you. Jesus' words clear the temple courts. Imagine the scene. Swirling crowds replaced by physical space. Jostling and pushing replaced by stillness and peace. Accusations and questions replaced by silence. As one pastor put it, Jesus literally creates a space for grace. An environment for restoration for this woman. As another commentator put it, Jesus is the consummate protector of people. And now the woman can only see one face, and she can only hear one voice. And who does she see, and who does she hear? Well, it's the person writing on the ground. <laughs> and notice the detail. He's writing on the ground twice. And there's been thousands of pages of ink that have been spilled over why in the world is he writing on the ground and what in the world is he writing there? And I could give like an hour lecture on it and I won't. <laughs> but I don't think it's that complicated. Maybe I'm just a simpleton, but there's twice in the Old Testament where it talks about the finger of God writing the law on stone tablets that are then given to Moses. And that law is the Ten Commandments in particular. And what does one of those commandments say? It says, you shall not commit adultery. And by getting on the ground and writing in the dust, Jesus is saying that he doesn't just know the law. He is the divine law giver. So when he stands to pronounce judgment to that woman, he does it with the authority of God. He looks her in the eyes as God looks in the eyes of his frail and broken human beings, and he pronounces judgment to her. And this is what he says. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Grace and truth. Grace Neither do I condemn you. In truth, go. And from now on, sin no more. You see, to the crowds, Jesus speaks a word of truth, and it creates space for grace. And to the woman, he speaks a word of grace, and it creates space for truth. 
to the final, in Jesus' final words to the woman, he neither, neither condemns nor condones. He doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't condone her self-destructive lifestyle. And what we're seeing in Jesus is that God has different internal reflexes than we do. He refuses to divorce grace and truth. He lives both together. He thinks through both together. He feels from both together, and he offers both together. Jesus holds together what we so often rend asunder. So I just want to end with a couple questions for you and invite you to imagine what it would like to be like to live into them. Brothers and sisters, in what ways are you trying to live and speak the truth without grace? I invite you to imagine yourself in the position of the scribes and the Pharisees. Imagine the time and the energy it takes to hold everyone accountable. Imagine the fatigue and despair that sets in when you finally glimpse your own frailty and fallenness. Imagine the pain caused by Jesus' words to you once you realize that he sees straight through your religious zeal and your pious platitudes. Imagine the feelings evoked by having your hidden motivations exposed for all to see. And then imagine the relief of slowly loosening your grip on that stone until eventually it falls through your fingers and hits the ground, the ground that Jesus is drawing on. And imagine the feeling of releasing all that judgment and all that self-righteousness and all that control. And imagine the feeling of walking away knowing that Jesus and he alone is going to bring truth and justice into that situation. Brothers and sisters, are, those you, are there those of you here today who are trying to live and speak the truth without grace? And the other question is, are there those of you today who are trying to live and speak grace without truth? I invite you to imagine yourself standing in the woman's place. Imagine your deepest sin and brokenness just exposed for all to see. Your choice, your habit, your attitude, your thought, your lie, your relationship, your action that you would rather keep secret, but known by all. And imagine the clamor of accusing voices, loud accusations, and the silent whispers, which are often the most painful. And imagine the feelings it evokes in you of shame and guilt, of betrayal and fear, of anger and anxiety. And then imagine the silence that descends as your accusers stop asking questions. They drop their stones and they slowly walk away. But now you're exposed in a totally different way. You're alone in the presence of Jesus with no one or nothing to hide you. And it's into that stillness and that silence and that space that Jesus speaks. Jordan, where are they? Jim, where are they? Jerry, where are they? I'm picking on the vestry. <laughs> Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Brothers and sisters, I speak these words to you this morning. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.